The book dream inside you cannot wait. Never before have so many people questioned, what do I really want to be doing? For a lot of us, that means writing a book. Long deferred dreams, pandemic pause, and the solitude to make them happen means the time is now. The mechanics of book writing can seem mysterious, but they can be broken down, as can the logistical minefield of getting published. You need skills of the craft, but also practical advice from experts who've navigated the path. What's the arc to becoming an author? The value and peril of agenting, conducive editors, the formats to publish and ways to promote. We'll speak with writers, agents, editors, teachers, coaches, publicists, publishers, resources, and guides to navigate the way for those of us brave enough to bring our story to life. Drop in to your book dream and begin to make it real. And now, here's your host, Diane Dewey. Welcome to Dropping In, everyone. It's the merry month of May, so named in the poem by Thomas Decker. Oh, the month of May, the merry month of May, so frolic, so gay, and so green, so green, so green. Here to speak to us about issues of being green in the culinary arts, eco-friendly farming, travel destinations, natural wine, all the good things in life, as well as, as having a unique voice to write about these, is our guest, Taraja Morrell. Welcome, Taraja. Great to have you with us. Thank you, Diane. I'm so honored to be chatting with you today. Well, it's our, it's our privilege. Hesperus Journal says of you um, in volume number three, where they published your story called Seedling, Taraja Morrell is a writer who grew up at the table. Her essays and reportage have appeared in WSJ Magazine, Tea Magazine, Food and Wine, Cherry Bomb, and elsewhere. Morell is also a consultant on various projects in the hospitality sphere. Her online diary, The Lovage, is a joy. For visitors to Paris, her entry on Parisian restaurants and food is essential reading. And I would add that any visitor to New York should consult Taraj's Soul of New York, a decadent and realistic guide to the way a sentient human being should progress through New York's treasures. Taraja is also a marketing consultant for the legendary Troutbeck, a 250-acre Hudson Valley estate hotel, home for centuries to naturalists, poets, and romantics. Revived and renewed for the locavore, the creative, the curious, and adventurous. So, Taraja, the locavore movement, the locavore movement, let's, let's zero in on, on that part of it for a moment, because it's one of the real cross-sections. You've said that it used to be that local blue-collar workers ate from the farm, and I remember this fondly, the tractoring, the weeding, and the bugs when I had a big garden, the constant tending, fungus, heat, long rows of picking peas, it was, it was work. Um, and now, as you observe, the elite do all of that um, and prize it. Uh, I wonder if you can just speak to what's changed and how. Right. Um, well, I mean, this is one of the ongoing themes, I think, of all of the ways that I work in the food world um, and the projects that I embrace and the stories that I try to tell. Um, yes, you know, for for most of time, one ate what was nearby and uh, the food that came from the land next door or the farmer down the road um, 
you ate pork when a pig was killed. You ate meat occasionally, um, and it was a privilege, and it was, you know, sustenance, and you didn't think you should have it every day, and you didn't think you should be able to afford it every day necessarily. Um, But obviously, um, you know, really in the last 70 years, uh, that has completely changed. Um, The industrialization of the the food um, industry has meant that we all expect, especially in America, but but in much, much of the world to be able to have whatever we want to eat whenever we want to eat it. And, um, and we are taught, you know, obviously that we should want to eat everything all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so um, what that of course has done to the environment um, and uh, you know, biodiversity and um, our food system is, is crippling. Um, and the long-term effects, effects of that on our health and um, on the planet's health are immeasurable. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think it's impossible to become a real foodie, um, as I certainly am, um, without eventually realizing that it's deeply tied to the health of the land and the health of uh, animals. I am a meat eater. I am a fish eater. I eat everything, but um, it's impossible not to notice and come face to face with the fact that our habits are not sustainable. Um, obviously, sustainability is a word that is used ad nauseum now. Um, everybody says that this is sustainable or that's sustainable or this, this clothing brand is sustainable. Uh, the reality is, is it's, it's, you know, it's a catchphrase and it's it's lost its meaning like many things that are used so much, but in fact, you know, sustainability means something that can continue on and on and on. And, mm-hmm. um, and our habits are, are by and large not sustainable. Um, so I don't know if I'm getting too uh, pedantic or, um, or no, I think- deep into this, but um, it is, it is something that, you know, it goes hand in hand with loving excellence in terms of, of culinary, because eventually you realize that, you need to consider the sourcing of what you're enjoying. And you're enjoying it more. Um, the, what you taste is tasting better, right? I mean, we're talking about this large picture that has tentacles into everything, climate change, you know, uh, consumerism, um, food as love, so more is better, um, being taught, yes, convenience. But going back to sort of back to the sensory experience, you're talking about food that's just going to taste that much richer, right? Right. Well, I mean, I I believe that. Yeah. I mean, I am obsessed with tomatoes. They're one of my absolute favorite food, but Mm -hmm. I only eat them for a few months a year. And that's really, you know, between August and October because they taste like it's, you know, it's the difference between watching something in black and white and in, in vivid color or technicolor, um, the way a tomato tastes when it is, uh, you know, from the garden, never been refrigerated. A tomato should never be refrigerated and, um, you know, grown organically. And, and it's a pleasure and it's a pleasure I, I personally like to wait for because I think it's worth it to have those three months of, of indulgence and, and, you know, just basically eating tomatoes three times a day. Um, yeah. just gorging on them. But I think it's, it's true of, um, of, of many foods, if not, you know, all that, yes, it, 
I find the, the act of, of eating um, much more pleasurable when I know that something was um, raised in a healthy way, a way that contributes to soil health and to environmental health, to the health of the people that are farming the mm -hmm. produce, if it's produce, or the animals, if it's husbandry. And, um, and yeah, I actually find it very hard to enjoy um, something that I think might not have had a, a, a nice life in a pasture um, if, if I don't know where it's from. Um, right. And that means, you know, the trickle down of that is that I tend to eat uh, at restaurants. <laughs> to be honest, I don't eat, eat at restaurants very much anymore because I have a little baby, but we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about that at some point. But, I, you know, you, st you tend to select places where there's a, a trust with the chefs um, mm -hmm. and uh, a sort of shorthand in terms of knowing that they, too, are sourcing impeccably uh, of course, as, as you first mentioned, this is a luxury and it, it shouldn't be, um, but it is, um, you know, sourcing from the farm down the street often is more expensive than sourcing from the farm, you know, in the middle of America um, that is a part of a huge conglomerate. And um, that's a very, very sad fact of our food system. You know, it may change um, in the sense that transport and gas prices may make it actually, wouldn't it be poetic justice if it actually became more, more economical and sustainable at an economic level? You know, but I love this idea that you're talking about, this sense of alliance, like a tacit alliance that you have trust that this chef is concerned and caring about the same things that, you know, that you are, that we are, and that that it tastes better, that the experience is that much more vital and revitalizing and just juicier because you understand, you know, that it's responsibly sourced. Um, and I, I sense also a, a kind of a self-restraint. Okay, maybe there's a bipolar thing there. Maybe, you know, you gorge on tomatoes three times a day when they're in season. <laughs> but let's talk about the self-restraint, like the other you know, like nine months out of the year when, you know, you can't really have them. Um, so there's a, there's like a balance there, right? Like something that we don't really have in our psyches right now. But, you know, the thing is, is that it's not, it's actually, I'm so pleasure driven um, in terms of what I uh, you know, imbibe and eat. And so it's actually not that much restraint because, it's just that they just don't taste as good the rest of the time. It's so it's worth waiting for, um, in, in my opinion. Um, and tomatoes are an extreme example. Um, but yeah. And it's also, it's, it's, it's tricky because I'm also hyper aware of, um, how hard it is for chefs and restaurants, particularly in New York where the margins are so thin to be quite so, um, you know, principles, because it's, it's very expensive to source like that. Um, and, but, you know, it's a part of, of the pleasure of, of getting to work in, in the industry. And, um, and it's definitely a driving force in terms of my, the way I think about things. But, um, you know, it's also, I'm also coming from like a, a, a life where, my family was more inclined to spend money on something that one ate um, 
as a special treat than, you know, perhaps on some other um, expensive item. Uh, there's, mm-hmm. a, there's a thinking of, of the pleasure um, being the most important thing. So, mm-hmm. and the pleasure that goes along with eating well, whether that, you know, that's gathering with people you love and setting the table and uh, coming together at the occasion of it, even if it's happening, you know, three times a day or once a day at, at dinner time, that that is sort of um, the guiding, the, the sort of lotus star of, of daily routine and, and living well. You know, it's so funny because when we travel, of course, you know, you go to Italy, the Dolce Vita, and, you know, it's this very thing. It's this very ceremony and coming together over food. I mean, there is a history when you think about, you know, Alice Waters during the 60s and 70s and Berkeley and Chez Panisse mm-hmm. and saying the vegetables taste like cardboard. That's why we're going to, you know, charge five times more for them, but you're going to have a much more satisfying experience and then not have seedings and, you know, you can stay as long as you like. And maybe it is a recipe for disaster um, financially, but, you know, she's a world, she's renowned. She has schools, you know, teaching sustainable, you know, growing and, and sustainable eating um, and educating exactly, in school, yeah. schools. So this is a, this is a long, a long lead up to this movement. And it, it, is it, is it culminating now? Do you feel that there's some kind of tipping point happening in the, in the industry where kind of, if you're not farm to table, you're not really there yet, or how do you read it? Um, I mean, I think that the sort of chef as celebrity uh, has the power to um, move the conversation further along, you know, and I think that that's certainly something that's been occurring for the last couple of decades is, you know, the celebrity chef. And, and I don't just mean like the TV celebrity chef. I mean, like the the chef is the cool kid or, you know, the, the sort of move to look at real people, but kind of idolizing them and I think chefs are a part of that and 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 so and also you know yeah teaching through people's taste buds getting people's attention through pleasure um I think all has a lot of power but ultimately um you know I really believe that it's all it's all going to come down to education and yes you brought up a great point Edible Schoolyard um Alice Waters um organization does teach uh you know the importance of of farming and eating well and how that it can, that can affect all aspects of one's life. But unfortunately, you know, that is not the norm. Um, so I think until um, school education includes uh, the importance of, of eating healthfully and sourcing healthfully and, and also empowering people to enjoy uh, the process of making food, um, you know, certainly vegetable-focused food, um, I think that will be the tipping point. I think that once education, it becomes normalized to have that kind of education, um, then then things will start to move. But I, I, I don't think we're there yet. Mm-hmm. Um, anything that we can do to move the needle, and your writing definitely does that. If anybody wants to see gorgeous, um, sexy tomatoes, any time of the year, you can look on, on, on Lovage and the Lovage and, and really feel like you're, you're almost there because Taraj's writing is incredibly um, rich in sensory detail. I, I wondered if you would talk about the normalization of, of 
of this kind of thinking in your life. And, um, you know, in, you know, you, you say, you know, it's all I knew and it's all I knew is, is the definition of, of memoir, right? Like it's the definition of your world growing up as a child, but um, you know, we've got like, I don't know, three minutes before that we take a commercial break, but let's just sort of invite ourselves into your world. What was it like? You were growing up in the city, but what was going on and to make you tuned into this? Well, I mean, every aspect of life seemed to revolve around the table, even when I was tiny. My mother made all of my meals from scratch. Um, My father called every afternoon, I think around five, to ask what was for dinner. He is in the wine business, so he would select what wine to bring home for dinner based on that conversation with my mother. Um, And... I learned by watching that the kitchen and what was happening in it was absolutely the center of the household and where, you know, love sort of began and and emanated from. And I would sit on top of the refrigerator because our kitchen was so tiny and I would watch over my mom's shoulder to see what she was doing and learning, you know, the basics of, of how to make a meal. And then I would experience it. And I, 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 I mean, you know, that clearly has, has defined me as a person, even though I turned away from it as a central tenet of my professional life for many years. Um, it, it, it always defined me as a person. And now, of course, it defines my professional life as well. Mm-hmm. Well, we all try to differentiate ourselves in some way until we realize that what's, what's in your bones and what's in your cellular level of knowledge is um, so, you know, so imbued with this ethic. I mean, and wasn't your mom, who's a dear friend of mine, so I must say, I full disclosure, both Taraja and your mom, Kathy Morell, who's an avid gardener, a bibliophile, all the things that I treasure in the world she is, and you as well, but you are also growing things, right? Like you're in the middle of Manhattan, but you're growing things. Yes, um, because the a wonderful apartment that I grew up in um, has more outdoor space than indoor space. And so although I'm a city kid, my parents cultivated the most gorgeous garden with sort of scavenged um, large containers to grow trees and plants in. And, um, and that was, you know, my, my version of nature. Um, for, for most of my childhood, I, you know, of course, we sometimes left the city to visit my grandparents, et cetera. But right outside our door was this extraordinary um, green oasis uh, that was very much alive. And um, it was it was absolutely magical. It was a yes. magical uh, way to experience life and and nature. And, you know, when one's um, view of the world is is much more narrow, and mine was also had this lovely green in it, even though we lived in a concrete jungle. Yes. Well, we're going to leave it there for the moment. We're going to take a commercial break with Taraja sitting at the bottom of a planter, probably looking at fig trees, and and it seemed like a forest. Um, But we will come back with more uh, with Taraja Morell. So don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In.
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. She Writes Press is an independent publishing company founded for women writers everywhere. Together with sister company Spark Press, serving men and women, it is both mission-driven and community-oriented. The aim is to serve writers who wish to maintain greater ownership and control of their projects while getting the highest quality editorial help possible, traditional distribution, and an in-house marketing and publicity team. In 2019, She Writes Press was named Indie Publisher of the Year. You can find out more on SheWritesPress.com. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to Diane at DianeDewey.com. That's Diane at DianeDewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Taraja Morell, a woman who writes with great heart about the food and wine and travel uh, experiences that we can all indulge in, at least mentally, to transport us and to help us cope and how to make those experiences even more in-depth. I, I really... You know, I think back to um, you know your 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 food writing experiences are legion and legendary, because you've reviewed dozens and dozens of of restaurants, and I, I'd read really any morsel that you wrote because you're you're an exceptionally gifted writer at putting us at the plate and tasting. Um, which is an incredibly difficult thing to do, like describing music or some other, you know, it's incredibly, uh, it's an sensory experience that, you know, you're trying to put into words. Um, but for the experience of a person going to a restaurant or a place, I also, it seems to me that you're you're able to capture by being very personal and specific um, a kind of environment that's conducive to us, either because it brings us to the nostalgia of another time or to our childhoods. I'm thinking now about Metrograph, the cinematic um, spot and, um, you know, eatery in the Lower East Side, where your approach to them coming about in the world was to create um, a monogrammed set of China, um, which I thought to myself, this is just such, I mean, it seems like a superficial detail, but you've got to eat off of something. Um, and why not have it harken back to something we never even knew, like luxury cruise ships or just the personal monogram that might be on your grandmother's china? I, I wonder, like, how you approach, it seems to me that it's in your writing and your approach to taking it's a fundamentally an institution like a restaurant and delivering a more personal experience. How do you go about that? Thinking about that? Well, yeah. I mean, I think in terms of Metrograph, I absolutely must only give credit to Alexander Olch, who is the founder and creative director and creative genius behind it. And he very much, uh, he's an old friend um, and a filmmaker as well as, um, you know, 
having started Metrograph, but he very much believed that magic needed to be returned to the cinema, to the cinema going experience. And he, you know, he built Metrograph um, as a contemporary uh, answer to returning that magic. Um, and, and part of that was creating, you know, a place where one could enjoy beautiful food, um, not in the theater, uh, you know, on one's lap where one eats, but in a lovely restaurant where one can also get, you know, a super martini or a glass of wine or before or after, um, or, you know, and lots of yummy things to eat as well. So, um, so Alex was very much the driving force behind the, um, beautiful Metrograph, uh, China and it's, um, graphic design and all of that. Um, what I do with restaurants is, is really different with each, uh, client. Um, in the case of Metrograph, it was very much pushing um, the opening forward, uh, in the, the restaurant opening forward and build, helping to build the team um, and a kind of a combination of um, public relations and, and marketing help specifically for the restaurant. Um, and then, you know, with another client um, such as Thai Diner, um, which is an incredible um, Thai restaurant owned by uh, Anne Redding and Matt Danzer of Uncle Boone's fame um, in Nolita. Um, For them, I was doing their PR. And with Troutbeck, I'm hoping to tell the story of what it feels like to be at Troutbeck and what Troutbeck uh, is um, with a focus on the culinary um, offerings, but but also just um, trying to pull together the different facets of an amazing property um, and articulate them um, through every gesture. And I think that's like a huge part of hospitality is um, the gestural aspect of it. Uh, What you feel when you walk through a door of a restaurant or a hotel, uh, what it smells like, what it sounds like, um, what, whether someone makes eye contact with you immediately, what they say to you immediately. Um, it is all of these things that together add up to hospitality and trying to help a place uh, express themselves, their identity, their ethos through each of those gestures from the coaster to the silverware to the server to uh, the food on the plate. All of those things are essential and they are all sort of, like the building blocks of hospitality. And so I, I help, I help to articulate those, those different aspects um, so that they together tell the story that is meant to be told. Well, the just, <laughs> yeah, it makes perfect sense to me. It drew me right back to a party I went to um, that was catered by glorious food like decades ago. And, um, I, I remember it was, I think it was a party for Tom Ford. He was still at Gucci. It was, you know, like this is now esoteric. This is just New York stuff that we're talking about. But, um, you know, yeah. in the art in the art world, you know, you had this certain like robotic thing going on where people like never made eye contact with you. And it was all just way too cool for that. And I remember going into this party and the waiters smiling at you, smiling. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, it's something's wrong. Like, what are they on? Or, you know, like looking behind me to see if they recognized a friend. No, it was the atmosphere that, you know, Tom wanted to convey. And 
it was like a, just a brand new experience, warmth. Um, you know, yeah. and, and it's such, it, it's such a wonderful thing to retrieve. Um, and, and the, you know, humanness uh, of this, of this contact and the connectedness, I think also maybe during the pandemic, look, we're craving it more and more. Um, and you, you talk about in your, in your own, you're perfectly willing to, uh, you know, welcome to jump in about that. But I also see that in your own biography, on another note, that you say, um, wanderlust and an obsession with culinary creativity and authenticity, which is what we're speaking to here, lures me away from my native New York more and more. Can you talk to us about how that dynamic works? What's getting lost in New York or what are you finding elsewhere? Well, I think, you know, it's funny. I wrote that bio a long time ago, but, but I think that, um, I think it's a couple of things. I think that there are a glut of terrific writers in New York. And I feel like um, I came to professional writing on the later side. um, And I took a sort of, circuitous path um, to it. And so I knew it was very obvious to me um, that I would not get to tell the stories of New York restaurants uh, because there were so many other people ahead of me in line to, to write about those stories, uh, those openings, those chefs, et cetera. Um, and so what I found was that if I went out into the world um, and had an adventure, culinary adventure, et cetera, um, I could find a home for those stories that did not have the sort of mass attention, the PR machines perhaps behind them. Um, and I could actually make my way as a writer uh, more like that. And so that helped me establish myself um, as, a, as a food writer um, when, I, when I began, you know, behind the pack. Well, when you visit the website, tarajamorel.com, you see dozens of really interesting articles, far-flung places all around the world. And I, I think that, you know, you, you started to bring your approach of, yeah, wanting to write certain stories that weren't quite told, um, you know, into your experience. Uh, and I wondered if the role of integrity and the lack of pretension that you find sometimes in other countries had anything to do with the desirability of, of going to a much more um, rustic sort of intact. I mean, I'm holding now articles in my hand, the Langorious Languedoc, which is about the Cathar Castle's organic wines, gorgeous seafood that make this Southern French region a must visit. But you talk about how the nearby Mediterranean, you know, is flush with tourists. This place is not. So are you, are you looking yourself? Or are you searching for a more authentic experience? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think um, I, I feel so blessed to have gone to these places and to have been able to experience uh, other cultures and these culinary identities. And uh, it, it is, it has changed me as a person to make this my work. 
um, and the ability to go um, write about a place that I would never be able to afford to just go on holiday uh, a certain way or, um, or, you know, knowing that I can find a story in it um, has, has just really gave me purpose um, and has been immensely fulfilling and, you know, satisfying. And um, it's also very challenging. I feel like I have to say um, it's incredibly challenging to push these stories through to magazines. And that probably is not evident um, in reading these stories because they, you know, they're, they're there and they did get pushed through, but, pushing, you know, when I say push through, I mean the process of pitching uh, to a magazine editor and convincing them to publish uh, your story is very, very challenging. And yes, I I feel very delighted to have gotten to write for, you know, WSJ Magazine and, and Food and Wine and Departures, you know, several times over in all those cases. Um, but it is really not easy. And it's not it it does um, you know it does pay, but it, this is this is not going to make anyone rich. So it really has to be something that one immensely enjoys as well. Um, yes. And yeah, it's, it's a wonderful way to live. But it's, it's in a weird way. It's like such an extension of how I was raised, which is living really uh, kind of beautifully and. Um, in a way, kind of decadently in terms of one, what one is eating and drinking. Um, but actually, you know, that is sort of an expression of a different kind of wealth. It's not representative, actually, necessarily of being wealthy. Mm-hmm. And you talked about, you know, the heyday of magazine writing. And I, I feel as though, you know, your passion has pushed you through, pushed these projects through. Um, and, you know, here's one, Catching Fire, two of Uruguay's most acclaimed kitchens deliver their South American heat to U.S. soil on um, the lovely uh, Francis Malamon. Um, and uh, also just really, you know, here he's, He's got a he's got an outpost now in Miami, but um, you know, you going to Uruguay, you experiencing. I think you were like a ceviche girl or something. You were like at a pop up yeah. stand for on the beach, um, you know, like basically living down there and writing. I mean, does this kind of thing actually even really happen anymore? I feel like articles are shrinking, experiences are shrinking. I mean, do these what and but at least it's brought you an arc uh, of sorts. But can you talk to the actual, like, yeah. to this? Well, I mean, that was just total luck and kismet. I mean, I, I was having, I was in a really bad place in my life um, before I went to Uruguay. I was deeply unhappy, uh, dissatisfied in with myself professionally. Um, and a very old friend of mine who had gone to high school with, um, who is half Uruguayan and has cultivated her life there, um, said, you know, for the umpteenth time, come visit, come visit. And, um, I always wanted to say yes, but, you know, it's very long and expensive flight to get there. And I had never been able to make it happen. And I hadn't, you know, I, at that time, um, in 20, 
14 when she again encouraged me to come. Um, I still couldn't figure out how to go because I had, you know, a job and I couldn't take off a week or two to go. Um, and her then boyfriend, now husband said, you know, please come. And I sort of said, well, I can't come on holiday, but if you offer me a job, I'll quit my job and I'll go. And her husband is a chef and, and, you know, it was sort of a joke. I mean, it was said over many glasses of wine and he said, done, uh, I'll hire you. I, I am always looking for seasonal employees and, you know, come down and, and I'll, I said, I wanted to be in the kitchen peeling potatoes and, you know, not talking to anyone, just do something meditative and repetitive. And he wound up making me the ceviche girl at this shack um, down, you know, on the dunes above the vast um, Atlantic. Uh, So I went and I had this crazy adventure on my own. I didn't have a phone. I didn't have a car. I, I walked and then eventually borrowed someone's bike and biked where I needed to go. And, um, and, you know, by chance, I wound up overhearing a conversation on my first day there where um, a woman said, it's so extraordinary what Giaconda has done to Francis's restaurant. And I thought to myself, did that woman just say Giaconda? Um, Giaconda is a woman who friends had been trying to set me up with as a friend for years when I'd moved to Spain um, and elsewhere, and we'd never met. And it turned out that in a town of 198 people, she was there um, running Princess Solomon's restaurant. And so we finally met <laughs> in Uruguay in the middle of nowhere. And, uh, and through her, I met Princess Solomon. And he said, you know, well, you're a ceviche girl. What are, you, what are you talking about? Like, what are you really? And I said, well, I want to be a writer. And he said, well, I'll give you a story idea. I'm opening a restaurant in Miami. And, you know, do you want to try to get it published? And I pitched it to the Wall Street Journal magazine and they said, yeah, we'd like to publish this. And that was a game changer. That changed my career to be published by them because the great thing about being published by somebody like WSJ is that suddenly it's legitimizing, you know, and then I remember an editor at Common Traveler said, well, if you're, you know, if you're writing for WSJ, you can write for us. So, you know, pitch to us. So, you know, these, that was just total kismet. That was just being in the right place at the right time and, and, and stumbling on, you know, this, this great story. And um, so you said, like, do these things happen? I mean, honestly, I don't know do they, if they happen. Life is strange. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you that after the first, you know, several uh, stories I wrote for the Wall Street Journal magazine, it was extremely hard to push through big stories like that, like, and it still is, you know, I haven't been pitching lately um, because I haven't been traveling lately, but um, yeah, I, I don't yeah. think I, I know some, I can tell you there are writers who are pushing through these beautiful, enormous um, pieces, but um, I haven't, I haven't even so much as tried in the last, um, in the last couple of years. So, well, there's something, there's um, something, yeah, there's something to be said um, for not trying and actually just following your nose to an experience you might love and that you waggled your way into over yeah. glasses of wine. So just keep drinking the wine and having conversations. Um, yeah. Speaking of which, we, we have to pause for a commercial break. But when we come back, we're going to have more from Taraja Morel. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In. 
America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Books Forward exemplifies excellence in book marketing and promotion, representing New York Times bestsellers, national award-winning books, and books that catch fire on social media and in the digital realm. Books Forward creates ambitious campaigns with unlimited possibilities for sparking buzz while creatively cutting through the noise. Your book deserves to launch with experts who have set the bar in the industry. To learn more, visit booksforward.com or send us an email at info at booksforward.com. A JKS Communications Company. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to diane at dianedewey.com. That's diane at dianedewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Taraja Morrell, and she knows a thing or two about eating and dining um, and, and how you taste the terroir and the sensibilities of another place when you're eating food that's you know, locally sourced and you're in a, or is of a cuisine, of a culture um, that's not our own, but as you say about Thai diner in Seoul of New York, um, you're, you're, it's captured there. Um, I also thought I'd just note a passage, eat omakase made by an eccentric. Okay, so this is Soul of New York by our guest, Taraja Morel. Um, Soul of New York is a series, a wonderful series, um, a guide of 30 exceptional experiences. They publish them around the world. It's so, it's such a great touchstone. Um, but here's, here's Taraja, um, and there's this fabulous uh, image of a, you know, the, Trust Kazuo. Kazuo is the chef in question. He's got green hair and a gigantic. Um, I'm thinking like this is a squid of some sort, right, Taraja? What What is this in his hand? Um, in that picture, gosh, there, I, there are so many great photos of of, of Kazuo. Um, it's like I, a black, yeah, I think it's like a porcupine thing. Oh, that's a sea urchin. That's a sea urchin. That's a sea urchin. Okay. Well, Taraja, being the adventurer that she is, can be blasé about that and, and eating it as well. So I just, you know, this is what I love um, about you, Chi. It's just, um, here's you writing about this. But even as a standalone, Chef Kazuo Yoshida's omakase bar, Yuko, Juko, is worth a visit. A larger-than-life personality with a penchant for glitzy street-style labels and dyeing his hair neon, a Nagasaki native, Yoshida will lead you through a superb ballet of bites. From amberjack, spotted sardine, and toro, to a vertical tasting of uni, his favorite. And if he offers you a taste of something unusual, say perhaps cod semen, the answer should always be yes. Trust Kazuo. This in the words of Taraja Morel. So we get a feel for you, T, as, as an explorer, as a, as a person who's not going to shy away. Um, you're, you're very accustomed also to, to interviewing other chefs who have taken brave steps 
Um, you know, you you ask kind of questions. I'd love to sort of turn one on you now. You've got a you've got a great and thank goodness also that each time you interview you you interviews um, Mark Hicks, the, the London-based chef, um, who is famous for the London Hicks Oyster and Chop House, in and Hicks Soho. You're asking him um, his earliest foraging memory. Now, not everybody has an early foraging memory, but I feel like you do. And I want to know, I want to turn the tables here and ask two questions, your earliest foraging memory, and another question that you ask chefs, what's your poison? And if you could answer those two questions, Taraja Morel. Well, first of all, that Mark Hicks um, story was so long ago. That was like one of the first things I ever wrote. And so um, I don't remember his answer, needless to say. Um, no, but yours, but what's your early My choice? answer, earliest. Yes. Yeah. Um, My earliest foraging experience, gosh, I don't know. Um, I mean, I, I, I think it was probably uh, foraging for mushrooms um, even before, uh, I, certainly before I became I, a, you know, a professional in the food world, um, in upstate New York, uh, where my family um, spends a lot of time, and it was with my friend Tony, who is an amazing uh, painter, mostly of birds, certainly of wildlife, and he um, would lead us on these walks, and, and we would find morel mushrooms, spelled with mm-hmm. one R and one L, instead of, like, my last name with two R's and two L's. Um, so, yeah, I would say I would say that's probably it. Um and then my poison, my poison is wine. It's probably natural mm. wine. It's, it's my favorite poison. Um, but wine, yeah, as, as opposed to um, spirits mm-hmm. would be my poison. <laughs> and natural wine, it's something, you know, indigenous. I mean, organic wine has been going on for centuries, right? Yeah, so at the bare minimum, um, a, a natural wine needs to be organic, but generally uh, nat- natural wine is, is a very um, complicated thing. It shouldn't be, um, but the term does not have like a scientific explanation um, that connotes its naturalness. It's, it's about um, it being, you know, the def- it being farmed biodynamically. Um, and so that's really a step past organic. You can't be farming biodynamically unless something is organic, but um I feel like organic is also uh, a, a word that's overused and has lost its, its meaning because I always tell people to source from, from those who they know and trust and, you know, should buy, get eggs from your neighbor. You see what the, those chickens are, are being fed. It doesn't matter if they have organic certification or not. It's, it's about, um, you know, trusting the people that are making something. Um, and and that's actually, that's something I, I always stress and people are sometimes surprised by. Um, yes. So it's more like know, know your farmer. That's kind of more like, it, don't worry about it, it saying organic or not, because that's just a certification that some farmers who farm organically or biodynamically can't afford or choose not to have that certification. Um mm-hmm. But in terms of wine, um, natural wine just means that uh, it's it's being farmed without chemicals, pesticides, um, in a way that's uh, tr- actually sustainable uh, for both the um, people working in the field, tending to the grapes, the land, 
um, the biodiversity of the soil, um, mm-hmm. and that's that's really what natural wine is all about. It, it, okay. it has gotten confusing because of um, natural wine being associated with being like really funky and weird, but it doesn't have to be. It can be elegant and classical in, in flavor profile as well. Cool. Um, well, it sounds delectable. And um, wine and morel mushrooms and knowing your farmer, those are the joys, really, and the color of the yolks, you know, the, the Stonewood Farm yolks. Oh, my gosh. So, to back to our point of we're going to go full circle here. You're back in Manhattan, your roots, your origins, and your dad is, you know, a founder of Morell & Company, co-founder of Morell & Company Wines. And I, I, I want to um, sort of embrace, um, you know, your experience as a child in this magical forest of planters on the terrace in a sort of not quite skyscraper, but like a high, tall building, right? Like overviewing, overviewing um, UN Plaza. I wonder if you could take mm-hmm. us um, so we can actually have the experience of listening to Taraja Morel's voice, unique voice, I would say, um, very granular and specific voice, mm-hmm. much like the stories that you tell. I wonder, Taraja, if you'd be kind enough to read from Seedling. Sure. Um, absolutely. So, yes, this is a, something I wrote a few years ago um, when I had been sort of given uh, the opportunity to try to recreate the garden of my youth, uh, having never gardened myself. But we'll, we'll, okay. get, we'll come back to that. So this is from yeah. Seedling. Okay. On afternoons and weekends, I played out there while my mother paid bills or garden nearby. I climbed into a large planter and pretended the shaded pod below the leaves was my treehouse, that I was a country girl, that I was Huck Finn. I picked raspberries from a scraggly bush and attached, attached them to my fingertips. I knew to wait until the cherry tomatoes were about to burst and then merely nudge them into my small wading pond. I thought all fruit had city silt on it when you plucked it. I read aloud to the snapdragons from flower fairies of the season. I grew out of that, of course. I grew out of the rabbit hutch-like room that my mother ingeniously conceived of when my dad refused to abandon the apartment. I traded it for my own life in dormitories and studio apartments that didn't have gardens. In my early 20s, I dated a man with a huge house in the Catskills and a garden that took up half a mountain, but I wasn't ready to commit to tending such a mammoth yard or anything else about the relationship. In my early 30s, I lived with another man, and to get to our folkloric Brooklyn carriage house, an island with green on all sides of it, we walked through the garden of one of the world's great landscape architects. Hers was seemingly effortless, though thoughtfully planned, wild and fragrant, brimming with life and children's voices babbling nearby like a sylvan stream. I moved to Barcelona with that long-lashed fellow who loved lemon trees, but by the time the sun grew strong in the conservatory room where he kept his saplings, I'd been evicted from our relationship. I'd never witnessed those trees bearing fruit. I want wildness that waves in the breeze, and so I experimented disbelievingly with seeds, literally laughing at the notion that I could put these tiny pinhead-sized particles into the soil and that something might actually manifest. For days, I watered the seemingly barren earth with laugh, uh, and laughed harder still when, sure enough, little green shoots appeared. I sprinkled zinnia and cosmos seeds that shot up quickly, adorably, mocking me in my skepticism. Their seed packages tell me to thin them, when they are two inches tall, but as ever, I find pruning difficult. 
the idea of taking away something hard won to make more room for something I can't yet see for growth without proof or guarantee. I discovered an old book from the 19th. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. Um, we are tragically out of time, but I just want to thank oh. you so much. It's, it goes very quickly, doesn't it? Um, but this it is a story. Does. It certainly does. And uh, the reason that I asked you to read it is because I can never read this um, this story without choking up. But I will give the last <laughs> the last sentence. My clematis vine returned from last year, as did my trumpet honeysuckle. And these things together, these small predictable and yet implausible acts of nature have made a believer out of me. And I really think that gives a flavor for Taraja, your equation of vegetables and faith. It's something. Um, and we just want to thank you so much. We've enjoyed your visit so very much. And thank you for dropping in with us. Thank you, Diane. Thank you for having me. You can reach her at tarajamorel.com and see some of this wonderful writing for yourself. Thanks also to our engineers, Matt Widener and Aaron Culler, to Ryan Treasure, to our executive producer, Robert Cialino, and most of all, to you, our listeners. We won't be back next week like usual because we're taking a hiatus, but I'm always available to talk to you about writing and identity at diane at dianedewey.com. We'll return to bring you special editions and interviews. Until then, remember to stay safe, seize the day, and the locally grown green shoot. Till next time, thank you for dropping in. Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then. 